0: My name is Claire Fowler from the Office of the Dean of the College, and I'm really delighted to welcome you to the Freshman Assembly for the class of 2015. This um, assembly marks the beginning of your intellectual life as a class. I know you've been having a lot of fun, and now's the time to sort of start thinking. Um, We designed this assembly so it gives you a foreshadowing of the the structure of a basic Princeton class where you get to do an assignment and then you listen to a lecture and then like all other Princeton classes, you then have an opportunity to meet with a group of students and reflect and discuss your ideas together because you have to participate in your education here. It's not just about listening to what other people say. Um, So after you've heard tonight's lecture, you'll go back to your college and we'll share with each other your ideas and thoughts about the lecture. So it's my great pleasure to be able to introduce to you tonight's speaker, Professor Rachel DeLue, who's an Associate Professor in the Department of Art and Archaeology. Professor DeLue was an undergraduate at Swarthmore College, and then she received her PhD in art history from Johns Hopkins University. Then she taught at the University of Illinois and the University of Chicago before coming to Princeton in 2005. Her area of specialization is the history of 19th and 20th century American art and visual culture, with particular focus on interaction between art and science and the history of African American art. She's the author of George Innes on The Science of Landscape, and the co-editor with James Elkins of Landscape Theory, and she's just completed a book on the work of Arthur Dove. She's published articles on subjects as various as the French impressionist Pissarro and the African American film director Spike Lee. Given the scope of her research interests, it will not surprise you that she's also affiliated with the Center for African American Studies, the Program in American Studies, and the Program in Media and Modernity. She's an incredibly popular teacher at Princeton. She has off-the-wall course evaluations, and she teaches lots of different classes, so I hope you get an opportunity to take one. Um, She teaches often the Introduction to the History of Art, and she's taught freshman seminars, and she's also... um, Next year, the departmental representative for the Department of Art History. So those of you who are interested in majoring that might want to get to know her. Today, of course, is September 11th, and even as we celebrate the hope and promise of your new life at Princeton, we also mark the 10th anniversary of a cataclysmic event in American history. Professor Deleuze's lecture tonight on the subject of history, collective memory, and the power of images Will surely enlarge our understanding of what it means to remember and to memorialise. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Professor Rachel Deleu, who will now deliver the freshman assembly address for the class of 2015.
1: Welcome. Welcome to tonight's assembly, and I should also say welcome to Princeton University. I know you're thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled to have you here. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you tonight about a series of issues and questions that I myself spend a lot of time as a professor of art history thinking about. One of the great pleasures of teaching at Princeton, of being a professor at Princeton, is that I get to figure things out in collaboration with students such as yourself, some of the brightest, most interesting students on earth. So I'm looking forward to doing that tonight. I'm going to open my remarks tonight by quoting one of the two articles that I asked you to read in preparation for today's assembly. And this is a line from an article published in the New York Times nine years ago in September of 2002 on the first anniversary of 9-11. I quote, No one could expect the memorialization of the murder of more than 3,000 people to proceed without controversy. No one could expect the memorialization of the murder of more than 3,000 people to proceed without controversy. As you know from your reading, the creation of the memorial to the victims of 9-11 at the Ground Zero site was indeed riddled with controversy, conflict, and a whole host of questions about what a memorial should look like, what information it should conclude, and what message it should convey. One commentator called the design and execution of the memorial site an architecture of negotiation. Every inch of that site throughout its planning, was negotiated, was discussed and discussed again. The task of commissioning, designing, building, and completing the memorial took almost the entire 10 years between the event itself and now. It will open to the public the memorial tomorrow, on September 12th. And you can see here on the screen and on that screen an aerial view on the left of the site and on the right a view of the two pools that make up the, the, the major element of the site. The, on the left is a photograph, on, on the right is an actual uh, digital architectural rendering. It looks very close to a photograph, but it's not. So why was this process of memorialization so difficult, so tangled? what made the job of memorializing 9-11 so hard to pull off there were many many reasons for this difficulty but i think that all of these myriad reasons can be boiled down to three overarching and incredibly challenging questions and i want to start our conversation by posing these questions to you and then attempting in some way to answer them through the course of my remarks. So the first question, the first overarching question that underpinned the design of this site was this. What exactly is it that is being memorialized at this site? Another way of saying that is what is the subject of this memorial? Will it focus on tragedy or recovery, death or life, the past or the future? Will it limit its narrative to those who perished in the attack? Or will it it extend its purview to address survivors? What about firefighters, the police, and other first responders? Or the myriad others whose lives were in some way touched or affected by the events of that day, including, for instance, the soldiers and civilians in Afghanistan and Iraq? Will the memorial tell the story of 9-11 only, or will it branch out and provide a sense of the larger context, the history of the rise of terrorism and the history of the ongoing wars in Afghanistan and Iraq? And I should say, before I move on, that I'm showing you two more views. On the right, an actual photograph, and on the left, an architectural digital rendering of the museum to give you some sense of the choices, as you know from reading the articles that were made, about the contents, that is to say the subject, of this place. So the first question would be, what is it exactly that's being memorialized? The second overarching question. Another question that caused problems, consternation, conflict, and controversy was this. Who will be in charge of figuring out the answers to all of these questions? Who is responsible for saying, this is what the memorial will memorialize? This is what the subject of this space, of this site, will be. Whose ideas, whose experience will be memorialized? at this site. A memorial by its basic definition, and I really mean basic because I looked it up in the dictionary, performs the work of commemoration. So if a memorial honors something by remembering it, and if you, you may have noticed on the website that I asked you to go through for the national September 11th memorial, describes the site as just That, a tribute of remembrance and honor. That's a quote, a tribute of remembrance and honor. If a memorial honors something by remembering it, who gets to decide what gets remembered, what gets commemorated? Who will decide what story gets told at this site? So that's the second question, who decides? The third overarching question, underpinning the difficulty, the struggle, I might even say, of developing this site is this. Is it even possible? Is it even possible to create a satisfactory memorial to the events of September 11th? Is this something that a human can do? If nothing else, the thousands of people who in some way experienced or witnessed, who came to write about or think about or who the events or who were involved in the planning of the memorial site. If nothing else, all of these people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people agreed on one thing. They agreed on very little, as you know from reading the articles. They agreed on one thing. It is these people including myself in a sense impossible to fully comprehend and fully describe the magnitude of what happened on 9 the, 11 there was a common vocabulary of difficulty and impossibility that emerged in that has emerged in the 10 years since that date people described themselves as speechless without words, paralyzed, numb, blank, over and over again, people of all stripes said, language fails me. When I try to understand and when I try to describe that day, language fails me. And this is a really tricky position in which to be as a human because we humans like to talk. We like to describe. We dedicate a huge portion of our lives to describing what happened to us, what we did this day or that day, to what our world is like, to what we think of others. That's what we are. We are describing, talking, chattering machines. So when faced with something that is indescribable, the question arises, how do we do it? What words can we find? And we struggle, and we still struggle to find the words today. It's hard to wrap ourselves around what actually happened. There are still photographs that I look at, and the photographs have resurfaced in, in the past week, and I've been looking at them over, uh, over again. There are still photographs of things that happened on that day that I look at, and I look at, and I look at, and I continue to look at, and I look at some more, and it, I can't... I can't begin to even fathom how that thing that I'm seeing in that photograph happened in my world, that that was a thing that was real in my world that was real, and I really somehow experienced it in this photograph that documented it. So if I'm in that state, if many of us are in that state still, ten years hence, how is it, how is it that we can take this impossibility to fathom and to describe and turn it into a thing? How can any physical object, be it a park, a statue, a painting, a building, how can anything come to terms with this difficulty? How can anything communicate the indescribable, the unfathomable, the unimaginable, the incomprehensible? How can anything that we make take stock and give form to something of such scale and scope of violence, destruction, terror, and suffering. How do you make art that commemorates a world transformed? That's the final overarching question. How does one do it? And here are two more views of the site. And I'm showing you some, uh, these views of the site so you can get a sense having looked at the website, of what some of the answers to these questions might have been. Now, these questions have faced designers in the past, and I'm showing you here four views of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which is sited at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., which was designed by the architect Maya Lin in 1981 through 1983 and dedicated in 1984. And I show you these... Uh, for a number of reasons, which I'll explain in a minute, but also because Maya Lin will actually come to campus on October 4th to speak as part of a series called Memory and the Work of Art. And I looked it up so I could tell you the information. Um, You can call to get tickets in advance, or you can go two hours early to the box office to, to pick them up. They're free, but just know that you have to have a ticket. Maya Lin is a very, very interesting architect, and it's terrific that she'll be on campus this year to continue this conversation that we're generating today. And Maya Lin and others in the past have been confronted with these questions. How do you memorialize or commemorate the Vietnam War? How do you memorialize or commemorate the dropping of the atom bomb on a city or two cities in Japan? How do you memorialize or commemorate Stalin's purges? How do you memorialize or commemorate the Holocaust? is it hubristic to think that art can somehow do that? Uh, should we be embarrassed to even be embarrassed to even try? So Ma Lin was was set with the task of memorializing the Vietnam War, which was a conflict that occurred between 1959 and 1975 that pitted North Vietnam, which was communist, against South Vietnam, which became in 1961 allied with the United States, and this was an incredibly controversial, divisive, and polarizing moment, or I should say series of moments in American history. Uh, This this was an event that divided the country and produced polarizing, vitriolic debate about in the US about overseas military intervention, about government corruption, about the draft, about atrocities committed by US soldiers, about the very nature of America as a nation. So Lynn was faced with this question. So this was an incredibly traumatic episode in the history of our country. How do I build a memorial on the National Mall using taxpayer dollars that somehow adequately speaks to what happened without giving a point of view, without being overtly political, but also retaining an edge, speaking to that moment in history in a way that it deserves. And her solution, her solution to this very tricky business, was what you see here, and many of you have probably seen this on the National Mall. What she decided to do was focus on a very simple, if horrific, fact. One that cannot be disputed. That fact being that in war, people die. In war, people die. And so what she did was create two black granite slabs that come together at a 125-degree angle at their tallest points, etched with the names of those who died in the conflict, beginning, those Americans, 58,000 total, who died in the conflict, beginning in 1959. I think I might have said 1859 a few minutes ago, sorry. I spend a lot of time in the 19th century, so that's why. Um, So this is what her solution. Was And it was an interesting solution because, of course, the Vietnam War encompassed also 300,000 American soldiers wounded as well as more than 3 million Vietnamese killed and more than 1.5 million Laotians and Cambodians killed as a result of the conflict. So she made a choice, and it was a choice appropriate to the commemorative function of this site. But it was incredibly controversial and i 'm not going to say you probably remember because I know that you don 't given that this was dedicated in one thousand nine hundred and eighty four um, it was incredibly controversial, in part because lynn 's design mylin 's design represented a radical departure from what memorialization in America had been that is to say monumental, monumentally scaled sculptures that depicted humans in action, that focused on the glories of battle, and the, the, the heroism of heroes, and the high points of conflict. And I'm showing you here um, another memorial that is on the National Mall. This is the Grant Memorial, the Memorial to Ulysses S. Grant, which was installed in 1920 in Union Square, off the mall. So this was incredibly controversial, Lynn's design, precisely because it flew in the face of the way Americans usually memorialized their wars. But it is, Lynn's design is now almost universally championed, and it is the most visited site on the National Mall, aside from the Lincoln Memorial. So the overarching question, just to summarize, faced by Lin and faced by the designers of the 9-11 memorial. How do we give, this is the big question, maybe the umbrella question for those three questions I've already asked. How do we give history, the events of the past, visual or architectural form? How do we properly do justice to the past and the complexity of past events? How do we make, by doing justice to the past, to the full and complex reality of the past, how do we make the past live in the present? And is it possible to do this? Can we represent, are we able to represent history? Now, you have read the two articles that I asked you to read for tonight's lecture. And as you know from looking at the website, many of the questions have putatively, that's a fancy way of saying supposedly, sorry, supposedly been answered um, uh, given that the memorial site has been built. So why is Professor DeLue asking these questions now? If the site is there, if it opens tomorrow, why am I raising these questions again? Am I a fan of controversy and can't stand the fact that something is actually solved, a problem is solved? Um, You know, am I a professor who likes conflict more than resolution? Uh, Am I trying to to, to generate that here? No. I bring these questions up now because the bigger... What we might say the upshot of these questions and the controversy surrounding the 9-11 memorial is this. History matters. And that may sound obvious because of course it matters. Without history, none of us would be here in a literal sense. History matters, but the way in which, the manner in which we describe history matters just as much. Now, one way to think about this latter point, and I I warn you in advance of what I'm about to say, not to be offended, but I want you to think about, I want you to think about how old you were on September 11th, 2001. And I do this not to make fun of you or to say, oh, you were just little kids, but you were, right? You were maybe seven, eight, nine, and that means you were in elementary school, Right? That means you were in second or third or fourth grade. And that's something to think about, right? Because if we're talking about the question, how do we represent history, and whose history do we represent, and how do we make history live in the present, we have to think about future audiences for these representations, right? So if you were six, seven or eight, seven, eight or nine on September 11, 2001, depending on your proximity to the event. You may have lived in New York, you may have lived in California, you might have lived in Connecticut, perhaps you lived in Japan. Depending on your proximity, you may or may not have a direct experience or memory of the events of this day. If you were seven, your parents probably tried to prevent you from having memories of this day. Parents probably shielded you from what was happening and turn the TV off when you walked into the room and that probably made you grumpy because why can't you watch the TV as, as your parents do? And I have this problem even with my three-year-old son. He doesn't understand why sometimes I flip the front page of the New York Times over so he can't see it. And he, he doesn't understand why he's not allowed to look. But chances are your parents didn't want you to look at certain things. And that means that some of the questions I'm raising, because I'm old, may not seem as pressing to you. They may not be as intensely part of your world as they are to say mine or other people who are a lot older. I won't say more grown up because that's never the case, but a lot older (laughs) than you. But that doesn't mean these questions aren't important for you because the manner in which we grown ups decide to memorialize or commemorate this history, which you may or may not have experienced directly, will be the way in which this history is communicated to you. Your sense of the past of your country and the past of the world in which you live will be a function of what us grown-ups, who are sometimes on the mark, but quite often rather misguided in what we do, it will be a function of what, and I'll stop saying grown-ups because that sounds patronizing. You are grown-ups. I'll say the designers, what the designers, who are even older than me, of the memorial decide to do will be your story, will be the story of 9-11 for you, as well as uh, along with all the other people who write and think and represent in other ways about this history. And this leads me to a second point about something that everyone, despite the controversies and difficulties, agrees on, is this. No matter who you are, chances are, for you, despite the controversy surrounding 9-11's memorialization, it is probably the case that it is for one, for you, for many, impossible to look away. Despite the horror of the day, despite the horror of the images that came out of that day, we sought and we s- continued to seek out as many images as we can, as much information as we can get our hands on. We did and we still do. Despite the horror, despite the un- incomprehensibility of the event, despite the fact that the magnitude of what happened exceeds the limits of our imagination, our ability to compute. We somehow feel compelled to keep talking about it. I'm talking about it still, right now. You've been talking about it today in various venues. We feel compelled to find some way to represent this day to ourselves, to memorialize it, and commemorate it as individuals but also as a group, as a nation or as a a cluster of humans amidst a larger cluster of humans across the globe. And the sheer number and variety of commemorations that have occurred this week, TV documentaries, solemn rituals, film festivals, concerts, museum exhibitions, Poetry readings, special editions of magazines and newspapers. Everything from these things to the somewhat more strange, I'll say, diplomatically. Things like Suze Orman's show about the financial lessons learned from 9-11, or a show about secret messages from 9-11's dead, or, and this is the strangest one of all, a documentary about how Paul McCartney experienced the day. The sheer volume and variety of commemorations tells us that we need to talk, and we need to describe, and we need to compute. For those of you who had time, and I know you've got a busy schedule these few days, for those of you who had time to look at the New York Times Sunday edition this morning, probably saw the section called The Reckoning. And this is exemplary of our need to talk, our need to describe, our need to rehash. This was a 40-page section of the newspaper, and it was filled, teeming with descriptions of this day from a gamut of people. But it was also filled with quantification and statistics. Charts, graphs, percentages. This many did that. That percentage of this did that. The war cost this much. The site took the, these many days to plan. It teemed not just with description, but with attempts to quantify, to put numbers on, to somehow make neat and tidy through familiar language the events of this day. We long and I'll use the words of the New York Times section here, we long to reckon. And to reckon, the verb to reckon means, literally means to calculate, to subject, to arithmetic, to compute, to weigh up. And we long to weigh up. That is to say, we long to figure out, to calculate, to know, to quantify. Not because we take pleasure in death and destruction, but precisely because such death and destruction such monumentality is so hard to comprehend, is so hard to again put into words. We endeavor, we continue to endeavor, I'm continuing to endeavor right now by talking about this, to trump incomprehensibility with an excess of description, with a mountain of representation, images, words, sounds, what have you, almost equal in magnitude to September 11th itself. Because we do this, again, because history matters. And again, because we know that the telling of history, the telling of 9-11, for instance, matters. How we choose, again, to narrate this history will have implications for us today and for future generations. History teaches us where we have been, but it also teaches us who to be and how to think. It shapes who we are and how we think now and in the future. It has a hand in the now and in the days to come. So we memorialize and remember yesterday in order to figure out what to be and do today and tomorrow. And we do so and have done so as humans incessantly across time and I show you here four examples, four very, very different examples of monumentalizations, memorializations, commemorations of history. On the upper left is a a memorial called the Shaw Memorial which was built in the late 19th century and sits in Boston Common in Boston, Massachusetts and it memorializes African American troops who fought for the Union. On the upper right is the Arch of Constantine, which was made many, many years ago in 312 to 315 of the Common Era, and this is a memorial to Emperor Constantine's victory in battle over the rival Emperor Maxentius, uh, and Constantine would come uh, to rule the Empire of Rome. Lower left is, in case you've... Um, never seen it before, but you probably have. It's probably on the cover of one of your high school history textbooks. That's (laughs) dear old George Washington crossing the dear old Delaware. And this is a painting by Emanuel Leutze, which was created in 1851. And this, of course, for those of you who didn't read that chapter in your high school textbook, this commemorates uh, Washington's advance on Trenton during the Revolutionary War on December 25th of 1776 by crossing the Delaware River. And in the lower right is the Shanghai what is known as the Shanghai Monument to Heroes which was erected in uh, Shanghai, China in the 1990s and this commemorates those who uh, those Chinese who ...died fighting natural disasters as well as revolutionary... ...this this is the phrasing from the memorial... ...revolutionary martyrs who liberated Shanghai during the Opium War. So these come from across the globe uh, and they all do the same thing. They attempt to somehow represent and remember history. We as humans do this constantly. You will now, everywhere you look, see a memorial to something... uh, ...from the sublime to the ridiculous. And the question again is... Not again, but maybe the big question I'm asking today is why. Why make art out of history? Why try to represent in visual or architectural form history? Why not hire a historian to write a book? Why not simply narrate the facts and set them down in ink? That will help us remember. We can just pick up the book and read it. Why hire an architect or an artist rather than a historian? And it's not just because folks like me need jobs. There's a reason. <laughs> Art is a very, very powerful thing. It can do things that words cannot do. And I want to spend a little time talking about that now as a way of answering why. Why must we talk about 9-11, the Vietnam War, the Holocaust, etc.? And why must we make pictures of it, because art is a very powerful thing. So you're all looking at me and thinking, why did she stop talking? Did she forget the lines? No. I wanted you just to look at what I put up. And I counted to five, because I wanted you to do it only for five seconds. And let me ask you this. Some of you, shout out, have seen this before, but most of you haven't, okay? In the five seconds that you looked at this, before I identify it, before you know what you're looking at, did you or did you not develop an idea of what you were seeing? Right? Your eyes devoured this image. Psychologists and, and cognitive scientists have, have studied the way the eye runs through an image, and it really does devour. It races through as if on a, you know, a, 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 a racetrack or one of those little hamster wheels, trying to get as much information as it can in. And this happens, in a sense, precognitively before the brain kicks in and says, hmm, let me ponder. <laughs> this happens. That's what we do. We art historians. We ponder. This happens before you know it's happening involuntarily, but then all of a sudden you're thinking. You're drawing conclusions based on what you see. So, I won my bet. That is to say, I was right in thinking that all of you began to develop a sense of what you're seeing here. I will also wager that none of you, or at least most of you, did not see this and say, oh, what a lovely black-and-white, old-timey photograph of two zoo employees doing a show-and-tell about chimpanzees to kids at the zoo. (laughs) If you thought that, raise your hand. Okay, a few. A few of your precogs. That's good. That's, in fact, what this is. This is a picture of two employees of the Central Park Zoo doing a show-and-tell about chimpanzees at the zoo for little children. I know. It doesn't look like that at all. It looks so much more loaded, right? When I first saw this image, and I was a little embarrassed, actually, when I realized what it was, because it it made all of these assumptions shoot out of my brain before I had a chance to stop them. I assumed this was about race. I assumed this was about racial stereotypes. I assumed that this was somehow speaking, this is a photograph made in 1967, uh, somehow speaking to stereotypes about interracial coupling and the disasters that might result. The, the, the... I know, but that's, that's the point I'm making, right? Settle down. That's the point I'm making. This is, this is an image that makes you think it is something wholly other than it is without you being able to stop it. It causes you to think and act. It has that power. This is a, a, a photo made by uh, a street photographer named Gary Winogrand. Uh, for a book, he collected a photograph called The Animals, which included a bunch of pictures he took at zoos. Um, and he just caught seconds of life. Uh, and he was interested not in what he photographed, but what that thing looked like when it was photographed, and he was interested how a thing in the world can be so utterly transformed by simply making a picture of it, even a photograph. A photograph is supposed to be the truth, the real. But this photograph sends us so far away from the real, we don't even know we've left by the time we get there. And that's what I mean about the power of images. Images are powerful. They make us think and they make us act. Um, And I'm showing you this, not because I thought you needed to see Barack Obama's Facebook page, um, but because I, I want to remind you that you all know how powerful images are. You use them, you exploit them every day when you make your Facebook page, when you style your hair, when you put on a certain set of clothes, when you decorate your room, when you design your online persona or your avatar, you all use images and make use of their power every day. And I'm showing you Obama's Facebook page because um, I am probably the last human on Earth not on Facebook, so I don't have, I know, it's scandalous. I don't have a Facebook page. Um, none of the Facebook pages I, I managed to capture, screen capture from the web, would have been appropriate to show you here. They all had very strange things in the like and don't like boxes and the what am I doing now, and my mom wouldn't let me use hers. so you are left with Barack Obama. And I give you this as an example of the way images are used by us all the time to make people think and to cause people to act. So visual art is powerful because it can communicate history and help us remember the past. And it can do so in a way that words, again, cannot. It can suck us in That is to say, images, art, can suck us in and make us seem to live that history. And I'm showing you a painting called The Raft of the Medusa, produced by a French painter, Théodore Géricault, in 1819. It can make us seem to live that history physically and viscerally precisely because a work of art, an image, is a literal thing literally before our eyes that we literally see. It's not a thought. It's not a set of words that represent something out there or over here. It is a literal thing in front of our eyes which we interact with in a literal way. And an image like this burns the story it tells. Whether or not that story is the correct one burns ...that story into our eyes before we even know what is happening. And an image, a work of art, is powerful also because it can take license with history. It can lie in order to tell the truth. Historians, at least reputable ones who want to keep their jobs, pretty much have to stick with the facts... They have to say what happened when. They have to provide evidence for what they say. And they're subject to fact checkers, people who can tell whether or not they are lying. Historians have to play by the rules. Artists don't have fact checkers. They have something called artistic license, which means they have a license to do pretty much whatever they want. They are not beholden to the facts. This is not always a good thing. This is, remarkably enough, for those of you who don't, those of you who don't recognize it, a statue, a, mon- a, a commemorative statue of Theodore Roosevelt, um, uh, our 26th our, um, president, served from 1901 to 1909, that still stands in front of the American Museum of Natural History on Central Park West. And the fact that art can take license is here not such a good thing, because what we see is dear Teddy, seated atop his horse, with a nat- flanked by a Native American and an African American, who seem to fully support and cheerfully embrace the idea that they are subservient to whites, and happy with their lot in history. So, Sometimes the fact that art and images can lie presents us with, well, shall we say, a bit of a sticky wicket. But other times the fact that art can lie in order to tell the truth is an incredibly good thing because often the untruths, the lies of art can make history appear clear as day. Take the work of Carol Walker, and I want to talk about her briefly as an example of art that makes history clear as day by line. Carol Walker is a contemporary artist. She is incredibly interested, very interested in the questions that we have been talking about thus far this evening, questions about history and its representation. And she's particularly interested in how history and memory history, but also memory intersect in our accounts of the past. Now we commonly, and you read this in my little blurb on the website, we commonly, so you know this already, or you at least know that I believe this, we common, commonly distinguish history, capital H, which entails a description of past events and facts from memory, which is basically defined as an individual or a group's recollection of those events. History, we assume, deals objectively with facts, while memory is personal and subjective, located in this murky middle ground between sensory perception and imagination, between between the truth and untrustworthiness. And we know that memory isn't trustworthy. But what Walker is interested in, what Walker as an artist is interested in, is the fact that memory... This murky, subjective, personal, individual, propelled by desire, memory, often plays a significant role in the telling of history and the formation of who we are based on that history. She's interested in how each of us and how groups remember their past, how they remember it, not how they know it, affects the well the way in which they tell the story of history, how we're, we perceive ourselves and our past and others today. So she's interested in how the telling of history is a matter of memory, a combination of facts and feeling, objective accounting subject, and subjective storytelling, meticulous detailing and selective editing. And she's taken in her work the institution of slavery in the United States as a case study of this intersection, this entanglement of the facts of history and the fictions of memory. And this is interesting for our purposes here tonight, because the institution of slavery in the United States approaches the unrepresentability or the indescribability of an event like 9-11 in the scope and scale of its violence. And also because, as with 9-11, the institution of slavery was a foundational and hugely significant part of the history, of our history as a country. And when I say our, I'm speaking simply rhetorically. I know all of you are not, in fact, citizens of this country. Um, this is an example I'm showing you here of the work for which she is best known. She is best known for cutting large-scale silhouettes out of black construction paper and pasting them on white walls. Sometimes the silhouettes are pasted on gray walls, and this is called. Her titles are fabulous. This is called "Slavery." Slavery presenting a grand and lifelike panoramic journey into pic- journey. Panoramic Journey into Picturesque Southern Slavery, or Life at Old Virginia Hole, Sketches from Plantation Life. And she made this in 1997. Um, So what she's doing is pasting. This is an installation. It's a room. And the space is as important as the silhouettes pasted on the wall. And her work is very interesting to me, because at first glance... And you'll see a detail of it there in the middle. At first glance, it's very... And let me just go back so you get a sense of this. At first glance, it's very, very beautiful. Before you look closely, what you see is an evocative array of shapes, of patterns, rhythmic patterns and decorative forms, sinuous and and elegant patterns that flit before your eye, that sort of shimmer before your eye on this white surface. And the silhouette form evokes the polite arts of the past. Um, Purposefully so. On The middle is a detail of what I just showed you, and on the left is something that that people used to make as a hobby. Instead of putting photographs in scrapbooks, they cut silhouettes of themselves and their friends and put those in scrapbooks. So they were like the photo albums of the 19th um, century prior to the invention of photography in 1839 and also the 18th century. So she's She's evoking this past polite form. She's also evoking Renaissance art. The the sinuousness and elegance, the finely detailed and calibrated uh, elegance of her forms evokes Renaissance painting. And this is a, a detail of a painting... Uh, fresco painting by Raphael, in uh, the, the, the Renaissance artist Raphael, in the Vatican, in Rome, and they're called grotesques, but they're meant to be beautiful and entertaining. They're meant to titillate the eye. So when you first look at her work, that's what happens. You see beautiful and evocative forms, and many, many critics have pointed this out, how she draws us in with the beauty and elegance of her work. But then we look closer and we see something that is not at all beautiful. And these are two more examples of her work. This is not from a Slavery, Slavery series. This is from another series, also with a wonderful title. Its title is The Emancipation Approximation, from 1999 to 2000. And she gives us, in her work, beautiful forms, but hideous subjects. uh, Distorted grotesquely shaped bodies, acts of extreme and wanton violence, severed heads and limbs, bodily fluids, oozing puddles of muck and murk, scenes that seem so sadistic, we wonder how a human mind, and I'm talking especially about the one on the right, could have thought it up. In other words, what she's doing in order to address the history of the institution of slavery is producing images, a set of images that brazenly invent, imagine, distort, do violence, and veer far off the course of truth, of facts, of the historical record. Why? Why would an artist so intensely interested in how we tell history, tell history in this manner? through distortion, through racist stereotype, through abominable subject matter, by making gruesome acts, the kicking back and forth of an infant, for instance, the tossing of a severed head to a frog, by making gruesome acts look beautiful and refined, by drawing us through the allure of beautiful forms into a chamber of horrors. She does this precisely for the purpose of revealing the full reality of the past. Not the truth capital T, because she understands that there are many truths depending on with whom or to whom you speak, but she's wanting to pull out the full reality of the past. And by that I mean that she is aware, and she's working in the 1990s and around the turn of this century. So things have changed somewhat since then, but not a lot. She's interested in the, the, the fact that until relatively recently, the history of slavery in the United States was told as a story, almost always as a story of the Civil War. The institution of slavery, the history of that institution in the United States, was told by and large by way of a narrative of North versus South, accounts of military engagements, victories and defeats, and ultimately, of course, emancipation. The Civil War, the actual conflict, for years and years and years, in history books and high school textbooks, probably even in some of your textbooks, the Civil War came to stand for slavery itself. T- I've, I actually looked at a couple of high school textbooks that are currently in use, and the unit on this period in history is, gives the basic facts and figures of the slave trade, jumps quickly to an account of the war, uh, a sectional conflict and the war. The earliest images set this tone, and this tone persists today. So I'm showing you four examples of the predominant manner in which the history of slavery in the U.S. is represented, that is to say, as the Civil War. In the upper left is an image produced in 1866 from Harper's Pictorial History of the Civil War, 1866, so very shortly after the war itself, uh, which shows a military engagement. This is the bombardment of Fort Sumter by the batteries of the Confederacy on April 13th, 1961. In the upper right is the the Grant Memorial on the mall that you saw earlier. On the lower left is a reenactment of a Union advance on Confederate troops. So regular folk living today who dress up uh, in period garb and reenact the battles of the Civil War, and this took place in 2009 in, of all places, Las Vegas. Um, yeah, I know. And on the lower right is a, an interactive video game that you can buy from the History Channel that allows you to wage the battles yourself. And so I'm showing you these in part because they're funny, but also because this represents our memory, our collective memory, in a sense, in the popular culture and in history textbooks. That is to say, the Civil War represents our popular or collective memory of slavery. Not everywhere, not always. I know some of you had enlightened teachers in high school who who taught you more than the history of the Civil War. Another way to express this is by saying, probably all of you know a Civil War buff. Right? Somebody who's really interested in the Civil War and who might, in fact, take, take part in a reenactment in Las Vegas. But how many of you know of a slavery buff? Or somebody who's interested in reenacting the, the sale of people forced into bondage at a market in New Orleans? How many of you have played a first-person player video game that allows you to sell People? at a slave market, or allows you to be a plantation owner in charge of a group of humans who do your work. That just doesn't happen. And there's a reason it doesn't happen, because it would be horrible. But it says something about how we encounter this history in our popular culture. The filmmaker Ken Burns said this, In the years immediately after the Civil War, we as a nation conspired to cloak that war in bloodless, gallant myth, obscuring its causes, that is to say slavery. We struggled to rewrite our history to emphasize the gallantry of war's heroes while ignoring the equally important stories of slaves. We changed the irredeemable into the positive, we changed the indescribable into inspiring tales. History has fixated on dates and regiments and weaponry and troop movements and battles and war heroes. Americans visit battlegrounds and reenact major conflicts. We name roads and schools and government buildings after generals, but never after a slave. This is a history marked as Walker sees it, by sentimentality, romance, nostalgia, myth, blind to the the whole reality and to the consequences of that reality that live today. And this is an analog, in a sense, to some of the things that are happening around 9-11. Some of you may have read about the talking points issued by the White House regarding commemorations for 9-11. Those talking points said, you must emphasize the positive. You must tell inspiring stories. None of those talking points said, find the most addled, drug-addicted, post-traumatic stress-disordered wreck of a person and put her or him on the front page. No. No the talking points did work similar to things like what I'm showing you here on the screen do. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with emphasizing the positive or talking about recovery rather than tragedy. But we, it's different than saying emphasize the number of people killed, talk about the body parts that were found in the rubble, feature the worst possible case of a survivor. The, most, the, the biggest wreck of a person of all. One of the most famous poets of the 19th century in the United States, Walt Whitman, said this, future years will never know the seething hell, the black infernal background of the countless minor scenes and interiors of the war. The real war, and by this he doesn't mean the military war, but the war that encompassed slavery itself. The real war will never get in the books. Now it has started to get in the books. Princeton's own Professor Emeritus, James McPherson, has written The Battle of Cry of Freedom. Tony Morrison, also a Princeton professor... Emerita has written Beloved and, more recently, A Mercy. Edward Jones, who is ta- taught at Princeton as a visiting professor, has written, and if you haven't read it, do, The Known World, which is a novel about African-descended people in the United States who held their own slaves. This is, again, not something uh, that, that we necessarily know about or want to think about. So Walker's pictures give us something more than the standard history, something excessively more than the standard history. And I'm showing you now a work from her series. And I'm finishing up here, not to worry. Um, I'm showing you now a picture from her series called Harper's Pictorial History of the Civil War. Remember, upper left, that's an image from that history. Hers is Harper's Pictorial History of the Civil War, annotated. It's like the Emancipation Approximation. Here she's annotating. History She superimposes a silhouetted figure or figures on um, uh, a reproduced and enlarged these are very large pictures uh, image illustration from harper 's pictorial history, which was incre- an incredibly popular history at the time. She wants to t- by doing this to give us something other than the standard n- narrative of the history of slavery, the one that has solidified in our collective memory. She wants to convey the whole story of slavery for all involved. And to illustrate this, and you don't have to answer out loud or raise your hands, how many of you, when you studied the Civil War or the history of slavery in high school or even in elementary school, saw images like the one on the left? probably a few of you. Good, yay, for your teachers. But that's the kind of thing that Walker wants us to make sure we don't forget. That's a, that's a phrase, don't forget, that we've seen a lot this week. And it's an important phrase because we don't want to forget. But we also have to remember what not to forget and know exactly what is important to keep in our minds. And it's the battles, the troop engagements, the military victories, but also the muzzles used to keep slaves from talking to one another, the fact that human bodies were sold at markets and done egregious violence to, molested, raped, infanticide, psychological, physical torture and abuse. That's a photograph of a slave on a plantation in South Carolina in 1850. It's not the kind of image that you would ever see on the front of a high school history textbook. But that's the bigger reality of that period in our history. So she takes Harper's Pictorial History of the Civil War and again annotates it and puts references through these silhouetted forms to some of the things that she feels we have let drop from our narratives. Not every narrative, but most narratives. And she puts things that represent the story of that period in our history as told not from the top down, but from the bottom up. From, from not the person, from, Not from the point of view of the person doing the violence or the person in the privileged position of telling that history, but the person who has the violence done to him or her, who never got to say or speak or write anything down. And she does so by presenting us with images, like in this image here where she annotates the page that illustrates Buzzard's roost pass in the pictorial history. She annotates with gruesome, excessively gruesome images, uh, with, with things that are grotesque and horrific in the extreme, images that don't depict the real or that don't document or show us the facts, but somehow do a better job of conveying, representing history than a reenactment or a video game or a memorial to Grant might. She's not saying this is the truth. She's saying the truth is a complicated thing. It's tangled, it's strange, it's weird, and it is not truth, capital T. There are multiple truths. And, and in never forgetting, we also need to never forget that there is more to a story than necessarily in the popular culture meets the eye. Now, these are incredibly controversial images, and this might be something that you talk about in your breakout groups after my lecture, and it's also something that I'm happy to talk about in a question and answer session afterwards. Uh, She's resuscitating exhuming incredibly vile imagery, racist stereotype um, that was prevalent in the 19th century and around the early years of the 20th century, and making it present today. And some people say, why do this? Why dredge up the brutality of the past? Why replay these hateful images over and over again now? Why shouldn't we forget these? And other people say, we can't forget them. They're part of her past, and the day we forget them is the day we stop knowing who we are and where we've been. But Carol Walker is one of the most controversial artists for these reasons um, to be working today. Uh, And I can't even begin to tell you the amount of ink folks like us have spilled on uh, debates about her work. So to close, I show you Walker in the context of a talk about commemoration, memorialization, the representation of history, because her work raises the big questions that I wanted us to think about today. How do we define history? To whom does history belong? What do we include in our accounts of past events? Whose stories do we tell? Who gets to say what How does our history affect what we do and who we are in the present? Is it ever completely past? How do we recover from the darkest parts of our history while still remembering it? And even more broadly, and perhaps most importantly, what is our ethical responsibility to history? and to the recounting of the past. What are we responsible as humans for doing with regard to stories about history? How do we make use of history to define ourselves, our values, and our institutions? And how can history and our accounts of it help us to be tolerant, honorable, and ethical humans? How can, and this is going to sound like a cliche, but I actually mean it, how can history and our accounts of it help us make the world a better place? Perhaps my ultimate point is this. Art, Carol Walker, the architecture at the Ground Zero site, Art can aid us in the task of answering such questions in a way that talking and words can't always. Art doesn't replace talking and words, but it can supplement us and it can push us to think in ways that we might not have thought before. And this is precisely because art is not history necessarily. And because it has license to depart from the facts, it can illuminate our existence precisely by telling us about something other than what we are and where we have been art is a way of seeing it's a machine for thought and it can help us figure out who we are and what we want to be thank you Well, thanks. That, um, it was great to, to talk at you for a good hour, and now I'm hoping that I'll get to talk with you a little bit. Um, I know I'll see some of you in classes down the road, but I'd be delighted to take any and all questions until we're cut off. Yeah. And there's a mic coming your way, so, so w- wait to speak until you've got the mic in your hands. Thanks.
2: So what would your opinion be on the depiction of the Vietnam War to the American public?
1: My opinion on the what of the Vietnam War to the American public? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that's a a really interesting question because... Yes, I'll repeat it. The question is, what is my opinion about um, the depiction of the Vietnam War to the American public? And until... Until the Iraq War, as somebody who was a wee babe during the Vietnam War, I actually thought, looking in retrospect, that the images and the accounts of the Vietnam War, at least when reporters began to really dig deep into the conflict, showed a relatively, I don't want to say truthful, but maybe accurate, and, and um, large-in-scope depiction of the trauma and the violence uh, and the suffering, at least of American troops. But, of course, it didn't report on atrocities. It didn't uh, report on my lie. It didn't, uh, it didn't... It completely lied when it... Um, Uh, justified reasons for invasions. But still, the the, the material allowed to get out into the public sphere was huge in comparison to what was allowed to trickle into the public sphere uh, um, after the the invasion of Iraq began. Um, So my answer, I'm not hedging here. What I'm trying to say is that um, in retrospect, it looks a lot... Uh, a, a lot larger in scope than what we see quite often today, when photographers are limited at, as to where they might go, as rules are set in terms of what can be shown. The most famous example, having to do with the Iraq War, is of course no pictures of coffins arriving uh, on on uh, American uh, soil. So I would say that that, and this is I have to say this because I'm I'm forty and I'm a cynic. Um, the depiction of the Vietnam War to the American public was half, full of half-truths and falsehoods, but, but it, it still somehow got certain things right in a way that a lot of media depictions of war today do not. Here in the front. And wait for the mic. There's one coming.
2: Um, really great lecture, first of all. Uh, My question is, how do we as an audience differentiate from art being um, a vehicle of conveyance for understanding versus propaganda?
1: That's a super question. And sometimes the line is so fine, we can't differentiate. And this is precisely the line that someone like Maya Lin had to walk. Because, of course, she had opinions. And many, many, many people involved in the, the, the construction of the Vietnam Memorial had opinions about the Vietnam War. But she somehow had to figure out how to create a monument to history rather than a propaganda a vehicle for propaganda, and I think she succeeded, but there are cases in which the line is too fine to discern, and this is why, I, I'll say this, and this is, I'm not boostering Princeton here, but this is why we're all here, to develop our critical acumen, to, to, to learn to see, to become visually literate, to become literate, period, more so than we already are, so that we, as observers, can say, that, that looks right, or I smell A rat. But we can't always make that differentiation. Uh, But I think it's our ethical responsibility to try. I think we have one more speech. Oh, yes. Go ahead.
2: Thanks. Um, Do you think that the advent of embedded media in uh, war zones like CNN, now Al Jazeera, do you think that's resulted in, like, the death of the ideal of, like, the glorious war or the glorious war hero? Like, when you think about, like, the depiction of World War II versus the Iraq War, I mean, even if our media is pretty pro-American, there's still a lot of stuff about, like, atrocities and something like the Dresden firebombing really couldn't have happened nowadays without a much huger uproar from the American public. So, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think I think that the embedding of photographers has had a double-edged or two-sided effect, and one of the effects is precisely as you describe. I think it is impossible when somebody is taking photographs and witnessing things from the heart of the conflict, as many uh, reporters journalists did during the Civil War. And Civil War coverage in the 19th century was far more graphic and far more widespread uh, uh, than, than any war hence. It's remarkable to think of what 19th century uh, coffee table books look like. I mean, they had pictures of dead bodies and, and severed limbs in them. That's just not what we buy grandma for Christmas these days. Um, but But I would say that that one effect was exactly as you described. Uh, When you're in the heart of it, it's hard to see. the the, the, It's hard to identify any single act or any single moment as monumentally heroic. uh, Because it's in the context of things that are not heroic. Not in the sense that they're atrocities, but... But much of life for an embedded photographer in Iraq or Afghanistan is sitting around and waiting in the dirt. So it's very hard to call heroism and glory out of that. It's also the case that embedment of photographers, because it's very carefully controlled by the military and by uh, the powers that be, that is to say, uh, the, the, the State Department and the White House, has had a different effect in that it has created its own kind of censorship. Because those photographers are told, again, where they can and cannot be. Uh, so it may have had... It may have had the effect of putting people in the center so that a certain reality is conveyed, but it also had the effect of a a kind of censoring that we may not have seen during the Vietnam War when photographers basically went wherever the heck they wanted to and photographed whatever the heck they wished to. Yeah. Other questions back here? Right there. Oh, sorry. Okay, in the balcony. Yes, balcony. Go for it.
2: To the extent that media nowadays turns cataclysmic events into breaking news and sound bites, what will be the effect on the way we remember our history? Will we keep remembering it in taglines, or will we actually have a compelling narrative?
1: That's a great question. I'm, I'm trying to decide whether the optimist or the, the cynic in me should answer it. Um, I hope... I hope that because of people like you and artists like Walker and other thinkers and provocateurs, my hope is that we can produce a compelling narrative, and it might be a fragmented, strange, murky narrative, but it would, it, it, whatever it is, even if it's tangled, it will be better than what we often see, which is, as you say, a tagline or a soundbite. Um, and the news cycle today is so quick things come in and out so fast that that i sometimes feel that my world isn't a real thing but a series of blips uh, a, a, on a screen and a series of iconic photographs and a series of of phrases like the economic downturn, the economic downturn, the economic downturn, the economic downturn. How many times have we heard that phrase, the economic downturn? I don't exactly know precisely what that means, but that has come to stand for 2008 for me. Um, whereas what, I, what should stand for 2008 should, should be six volumes, 3,000 pages each, that detail that history. Uh, So I think we run the risk of taglining and soundbiting our history, but my hope is that we can somehow figure out how not to do that. Yeah, in the back, right there. Oh, I'm sorry. We're calling on different people. Sorry about that. You're next. The war (laughs) itself (laughs) was (laughs) represented (laughs) in a very good point. Um the future war memorial for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars will have a similar effect, representing the difference the different (laughs) type of war that we're currently fighting or do you think that given Uh, the I'll repeat the question, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Given the censored media, (laughs) it will be a step back, a step towards that sheltered view of war. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And the question, let me repeat it, the question is this. Um, do I think that future memorials to the wars being waged currently in Afghanistan and Iraq will be transformative in the same way that Maya Lin's memorial was, in that it had to account for a new kind of war, uh, a new kind of conflict, and a new kind of American involvement or, or, or attachment to that conflict? Uh, will it be transformative in a radical and productive way? Or will, because of censorship of media, because we don't uh, have a, a sense of the full reality, excuse me, uh, of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, or because they are so unlike the wars of the past, will it be a step back? Will we revert to guys on horses uh, waving? Well, with the Vietnam Memorial, we did, actually. There, It was so controversial uh, when it was first put up that folks demanded, that, a, and I should have brought an image of this, demanded that a proper memorial statue be erected, and so um, a figurative, dramatic, glorious statue. It's actually quite beautiful and a very important one. It stands very near the Vietnam Veterans Memorial designed by Lin. Um, I'm going to just say, I'm going to be honest, I don't know how to answer this question because it's an incredibly difficult one Um, because it's so hard to even imagine Iraq and Afghanistan as a war period, the end. I mean, as a conflict that has one side against the other fighting over a a specified issue, communism in in Vietnam, liberty and freedom in the American Revolution, slavery, uh, uh, and economic policy in the Civil War. It's hard to know, and that goes for 9-11 as well. Um, It was a discrete event that happened on one day, but its larger context is so complicated that my tendency is to think that whoever is assigned the task of memorializing these wars, as you're asking, is going to have his or her work cut out for him, absolutely, or her. There was somebody over here who was next. Who was that? You know. You remember.
2: My question is, if the 9-11 Memorial were to actually incorporate elements of like Iraq and of Africa, Africa in
0: both of those
1: wars. Yeah, so the question the question is this. Um, if the 9/11 memorial were to somehow incorporate aspects or information about the current ongoing wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, how would that affect our pursuance of those conflicts, right, Uh, 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 as we go forward? That is a very, very important question because the the, the thing about the 9-11 memorial is that it's attempting to remember and commemorate and memorialize an event that occurred as the result of actions and ideas and conflicts that are absolutely ongoing. So it's a very tricky situation. How do you remember something that hasn't happened yet or is not finished happening? Uh, and the, the quest, this question is, how does that attempt to remember what is still happening influence what we do in the future? And I think it absolutely does. And the museum at the 9-11 memorial site actually does attempt to, and you may have gathered this from looking at the website, does attempt to spend time with the larger context of the terrorist attacks with the history of al qaeda with the history of extremism it 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 talks about afghanistan and it talks about iraq but i have not seen it so i don't know what the nature of that information is or or how it looks or what its what its implications are so i guess Professors like to talk a lot instead of just saying yes or no, but I guess my answer would be just yes. I think it will. I think it absolutely will uh, impact how we go forward. And that's the point in a sense that, that maybe I'm ultimately trying to make is that whatever we say now, however we depict history now will absolutely influence how we act, the history we create in the future. Somebody from down here. Yeah, in the front there.
2: You mentioned a lot how we should be able to refine our acumens and really look to at pictures to distinguish between history, memory, truth, and however many other layers of the image there are. Mm-hmm. And yet you also mentioned how you literally flip over the front page of the Times to shield your own son. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say is the best way to kind of walk the line between these two approaches in order for us to understand and really respect all the possible meanings between an image and yet at the same time protect the ones that we care about until I guess the maturity level that they are yeah. able to deal with these possibly yeah. traumatic images.
1: Yeah, so so if I could answer that question completely and and logically I would win the parent of the year award <laughs> because I got nothing. I don't really know how one does that as a parent. Uh, but I understand that the force behind your question, it's not so much about how I deal with my three-year-old, but how, because um, you're probably not actually really interested in that at all, um, but it's, it's, it's more about how how do we walk that line between digging into, plunging into, exposing ourselves to to images so that we can be critical about them. Uh, and. And figuring out what images not to look at, and what images to shield certain people uh, from. And I think, I think the analogy that might be drawn here is this having to do with the free with, with the idea of freedom of speech and and you, this th- this is going to sound so old school that you're all going to groan and and wonder what I'm doing up here on stage but there's a difference between expressing an opinion making a picture representing how you feel even lying in art and yelling fire in a crowded theater. And I think if we, and a a professor of ethics or philosophy can answer this better than me, but our calculation has to do, must have to do with the potential damage, literal or psychological, um, that an image or an act might have on its recipient. So I need to weigh my desire for, say, my son to look at things clearly with open eyes and the damage that it might cause him because he has yet to develop that critical acumen in, in the same way that one might distinguish between freedom of speech and hate speech. Um, I think that, that the question you're asking, is an, it, 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 again, has to do with a certain set of ethical precepts one develops about if If the damage done by looking outweighs the positive upshot of that looking, you turn over the paper. And this is the debate that surrounds Walker. Is more damage done than good? By showing some of the vilest racist stereotypes from our country's past. Do we do good? Are we performing an ethical act? Or are we harming? Are we practicing hate? That, that's the line we're walking. And I think it's a question of ethics having to do with damage and implications that we need to ask ourselves when we're making that decision. And when I figure out how to raise my child, I will let you know. <laughs> One more. Okay, so what section haven't I called on? In the back. Okay, there's some, somebody with a hand really way up waving it wildly in the back. So you? Yes, you.
0: Oh! Thank okay. you.
2: Okay. Uh, Professor DeLu, uh, thank you again for your presentation. Um, with reference to the Can 9/11. You wave your, wo- wo- your
1: hand. Wave your hand. Who's talking? I can't see you.
2: Oh, Professor DeLue, I'm, I'm back here in the corner on the uh, first floor.
1: Oh, you. It is you. Okay. Yes, Professor. Right, Thank right.
2: you. <laughs> okay. Hi. Okay. Oh, come on. Go uh, for Professor it. DeLue, I was curious. Looking at the idea of art and objectivity, I think we can agree that objectivity itself is an essentially contested concept. Mm-hmm. And with reference to the 9-11 memorial, I was wondering, in your perspective... To what extent does emotion play a role in objectivity versus subjectivity when we're talking about the 9-11 memorial and the designing and what it's supposed to be representing? Thank you.
1: Okay, so the question was, how how much does emotion, how much does subjectivity, that is to say uh, the world seen from the the point of view of an individual or a, a group rather than fact as such, how much... Of a role do those things play in the 9-11 memorial? And I would say, actually, uh, any memorial that does its job, that succeeds in commemorating history does, in fact, incorporate the personal, the emotional, and the subjective, precisely because history is those things itself. History is not evacuated of, free of, immune to emotion, subjectivity. Decisions at the highest levels of government over the past hundreds of years have been made based on emotion, on subjective points of view. Uh, And the events of September 11th... uh, One can write them as facts, but our sense of them as humans, as individuals, and as a society has to do very much with emotion and subjective response. And so if we write that out of a memorial, we are not, in a sense, commemorating how we lived that history. And I will say that I think the designers absolutely and purposefully injected emotion and subjectivity into the memorial, precisely through the the arrangement of names, which is based on, uh, or was constructed by a computer-based algorithm, that itself was based on the opinions, the emotions of the survivors. Uh, that is to say, the, the family members uh, of those killed in the attack, so etched in stone, uh, on the edges of the pools is literally the emotion of those left behind. So this is, again, another instance of instead of jabbering on, I would just say yes,
0: yes, absolutely. There are a lot of questions out there, but you all need to go back to your college, so let 's just thank) <clears throat>
1: Thanks to all of you. Thanks for the questions. Have an amazing next couple of days, a great first semester, and I will see you in McCormick Hall in my classes.